Well, if you've been around here long enough, you knew Rocky Wyatt, and Rocky said, you've got to be ready to preach, pray, or die. And so tonight, I preach. (laughs) Please open your Bibles with me to the book of Jude. The book of Jude. I'm going to read our text we're going to be looking at tonight, beginning in verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation... I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. On September 11, 2001, at 8.45 in the morning, an American Airlines Boeing 767 loaded with 20,000 gallons of jet fuel crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center in New York City. The impact left a gaping, burning hole near the 80th floor of the 110-story skyscraper instantly killing hundreds of people and trapping hundreds more inside on higher floors. As the evacuation of the tower and its twin got underway, television cameras broadcasted live images of what initially appeared to be a freak accident. Then, 18 minutes after the first plane hit, a second Boeing 767, United Airlines Flight 175, appeared out of the sky, turned sharply toward the World Trade Center, and sliced into the South Tower near the 60th floor. The collision caused a massive explosion that showered burning debris over the surrounding buildings and the streets below. America was under attack. And every year on September 11th, we take time out of our day to remember with great sadness, those events that took place over 21 years ago. It is an event that will forever be seared into our minds as we remember the greatest terrorist attack on American soil. We remember exactly where we were when we first heard about this tragedy. Certainly, fear filled our hearts and our minds as we began to run faithful scenario after faithful scenario through our brains. Our thoughts immediately turned to our families and our friends with with a sincere longing to to be with them in those moments. We grieved for the families whose lives would be forever changed by such an invasive assault on our country. What a horrible tragedy it was. And certainly the most recited question of the day was, how could something like this happen? How could the security in our country be breached in such a way so as to allow for for such an attack to occur? The answer was by way of a very strategic, subtle, patient process, which was fully committed to by the enemy. 
This attack plan was not conjured up and set into motion on the evening of September 10th, 2001. But rather it was set into motion over a year earlier as 19 militant extremists from Al-Qaeda secretly snuck into our country under false pretenses and began to infiltrate it from within. Many of them obtained visas and secured jobs and then suddenly began to prepare for their assault on that fateful day. And though the events on that day were tragic, and we will remember them always, I want to submit to you this evening that there's even a greater terrorist attack that is ongoing in our land, and its schemes are being worked out in churches every week. I'm not talking about a physical terrorist attack, but rather a spiritual terrorist attack being orchestrated by spiritual terrorists throughout the church today. I am talking about false teachers who are creeping into churches under false pretenses and slowly beginning to execute their assaults. I'm talking about those who claim to be true believers but are really wolves in sheep's clothing. I'm talking about those who Paul calls out in Galatians chapter 1 as preaching a a false gospel and who he says are to be accursed, uh, who are to be anathema. I'm talking about those who have influence, who claim Christ with their lips but deny him by their immoral, debased lifestyles. I'm talking about those whom Paul warned Timothy about in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 3, when he says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. And in his second and final letter to Timothy, he states in chapter 3, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And Paul says, avoid such men as these. I'm talking about those whom Jude warns about in our text this evening. False teachers have infiltrated the region that Jude is writing to. Their specific teaching is not identified in the book, but their, but their character is. And our text, verses 3 and 4, is Jude's purpose statement for his letter and the reason why he is writing to these people. And we will see that he wants for his re- what he wants for his readers is to be the same thing that every faithful shepherd wants for his flock. Beloved, we are in a war And every faithful shepherd who is worth his salt must respond to his flock, as Jude does here in these verses, so that we can make war on all that is false with the truth. I want 
you to note tonight two urgent responses of a faithful shepherd to the church who is under attack. Two urgent responses of a faithful shepherd to the church who is under attack. And the first urgent response of a faithful shepherd is the faithful shepherd's divine appeal. The faithful shepherd's divine appeal. Look at verse 3 with me and notice who Jude is going to appeal to. He says, beloved. He addresses them as beloved. These are those who are the called. They are loved by the Father and they are kept in Jesus Christ as he has stated in verse 1. And so we know that he is talking to believers. Those who have a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he uses a very endearing term here, indicating that, that these are dear saints that he is addressing. Now, this term shows a, a deep concern for these people, a, a genuine care and, and love for them. It indicates a close relationship, uh, even if they are unknown personally to the author. Jude was writing, it was, a, it was a various audience. He didn't know every single one of them, certainly. But because of their unity that they had in Christ, there was a close-knit bond. These people were indeed beloved to Jude. This term at the beginning of the letter also indicates that, that love is the fundamental motive of his present ministry to them, even though the contents of this letter, if you've read it, are fairly unpleasant. See, one of the greatest ways that a pastor can demonstrate love for his sheep is by warning them concerning all of the frauds and all of the false teaching pervading the church. And so, as Jude is about to warn them, he wants to remind his readers right out of the gate that he loves them, that he deeply cares for them. These people are loved by God and they are loved by their pastor. Well, Jude continues on by explaining to these believers his original reason for wanting to write them this letter. Look again at verse 3. It says, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, Jude was, was making a strenuous and focused effort to encourage these people about their common salvation. His goal is the same as every pastor's goal. He wanted to build them up in the faith. The idea of common here is in reference to our common salvation. It does not indicate something inferior or less important. But rather, this is the truth that is to be known and understood by all true believers. It is the truth that, that all believers have in common. Now, this is the comprehensive truth concerning salvation. It's, it's blessings of the past, it's blessings of the future, and it's blessings of the present. And, and all of the implications that go along with that salvation and Jude, being the loving pastor that he was, he wanted to encourage them in the truths and, and blessings of the gospel. And isn't that true that that's what we want to rejoice in week after week? We want to think about the blessings of, of the gospel in eternity past where God chose us. We want to think about the blessings of the gospel in the present, that we have been saved by grace because of the Lord Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. We want to think about the salvation of the future when we will have new bodies and be in the presence of our Savior forever. We want to focus in on, on our forgiveness of sin and our, our reconciliation to God. And that's what Jude wanted to encourage these folks in. 
But notice that while Jude was making every effort to write to them about this, the text says that he felt the necessity to change his letter to an appeal. An appeal, the word that Jude uses right here that is translated necessity, helps us to understand the type of pressure that Jude felt to change his purpose. This word is is a divine constraint or, or a divine pressure put on Jude to change from what he desired to write about to what God specifically wanted him to write about. That is to say that Jude found it of absolute necessity because of the constraint of God to appeal to them to contend for the faith. There was a need of the hour that had to be addressed. False teachers were infiltrating the region that that Jude was writing to. Their teaching was was going to begin to influence the true believers and, and cause their lives to go astray. And so God caused Jude to understand that the spiritual terrorists were beginning to carry out their plot amongst the churches in that region, and Jude's command was to sound the alarm. And friends... This is the very need of our hour as well. False teachers are prevalent today, and they are seeking every angle that they might gain an advantage and influence the true church of God. And no church is exempt from their attack. False teaching such as works-based salvation and easy believism Teaching that says Mary is equivalent with Jesus in divinity and authority. Teaching that gives divine status to a mere man who rides around in what is commonly known as the Pope Mobile. This is the false teaching that makes Jesus fit in with our culture rather than worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. This is false teaching that says you can be a believer and live any way you want. This is false teaching that says Satan and Jesus are brothers. This is false teaching that says Jesus was just a good man or a prophet, but he's not God. This is false teaching that redefines marriage from the biblical and ordained definition of one man and one woman joined in a covenant relationship with one another for life to you can marry anyone or anything as long as it makes you happy. This is false teaching that elevates the immorality of our culture to something that is to be sought after and affirmed. This is false teaching that uses Marxist ideology to promote wokeness as the answer to spiritual reconciliation. This is any teaching that twists the word of God out of its original context and manipulates it for a human agenda. Church, the hour is upon us. The need is real, just as it was in Jude's day. Therefore, Jude says in his text, I divinely appeal to you to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. This appeal that Jude is making is the answer to standing your ground in the midst of the storm and continuing to grow to become more like Jesus Christ. Now, this appeal to contend for the faith is is the only response that will enable you to not be tossed 
to and fro by every wind of doctrine that, that passes by. You see, no human intuition or genius or wisdom or philosophy or effort is capable of enabling you to weather the storm of false teaching that is pervading the church. The verb used here means to contend or to rigorously struggle for. The present tense of this verb indicates that this is to be a continuous contention or struggle for the believer to compete in. Its root form is used in 1 Corinthians 9.25, speaking of the one who competes in athletics. The idea is that this struggle is laborious and that it is painstaking. It's like the physical contention that happens in a wrestling match. In high school, I was a football player. I loved football. Unfortunately, I got lot, I got hurt a lot when I played football and got a very bad nickname called China Doll. I, I broke a few things. And so my football coach said, Brandon, I think it would be a good, uh, good idea for you to wrestle. You need to toughen up a bit. And so I thought, okie doke. And uh, I never really wanted to wrestle, but we got involved with that. And I realized very quickly that wrestling was not my thing, if you will. Putting on that onesie and <laughs> fighting with other guys on a mat really wasn't the thing that I was called to do with my life. And, and so I began to train and quickly realized that it was the hardest thing I had ever done in my life. Wrestlers are in unbelievable shape and and I was I was strong back then I was a lot thinner than I am now I was I was built in a way that they thought this guy is going to be able to wrestle and he's going to do well and so they were excited and so I was excited until I had to fast and get down to weight and that was terrible so one of the first matches that I I had as a wrestler I got out there and I realized I was going against this. He was about 6'6", six, 6'7". Six, six, and I was the size I am now, very short. And I thought, I'm going to break this guy in half like a twig. I'm literally going to bend him in half and we're going to be done here in just a few seconds. And as I was thinking that, you know, the whistle blew. And the guy who was six foot whatever put me in some kind of position. I think they call it the cradle. And as I was there contemplating my life and thinking, Lord, please bring the sweet release of death upon me, I was then pinned in nine seconds, one of the fastest pins in state history. <laughs> and there I quickly understood that wrestling may not be for me. And that was the most contentious nine seconds I've ever had in my life, by the way. This life is like a wrestling match. This Christian life is, is not a walk in the park. The Christian life is not some easy stroll that is to be taken lightly and, and acted upon half-heartedly. The Christians are, are soldiers in a war contending for victory. They are athletes contending for an imperishable crown. The Christian life was not meant to be your best life now with all the health wealth and prosperity you could want. 
Living in a world that is hostile towards your master and therefore hostile towards you is not meant to look like the happiest place on earth. Christian, you are in a war. Every day is a battle. Every day is a contentious wrestling match. Every thought you are to take captive. This is not a spectator sport. You are, as a believer, contending against the false message that is leading the world to hell by holding fast to the divine truth of the scripture and proclaiming that truth by the way that you live and by the words that you say. And the faith that Jude is referring to is is the body of truth which is objective, that has been handed down from the apostles to the church. He's not talking here specifically about your subjective faith, that faith that you place in Christ for salvation. But rather, he's talking about this, this body of truth that we consider this Christian doctrine. It's been handed down from the apostles to the church. It is equivalent to the apostles' teaching, and it is the divine revelation. Once signifies that this truth is set and established. It is not a truth that shifts according to the fashion and whim of the day. It is not changed because of fleeting emotion, feelings that come and go. The divine truth known as the Bible that you hold in your hands right now, it is not up for debate. It is set. It is established. As we read this morning in Psalm 119.89, it is forever settled in heaven. The truth these believers in Jews' day and you and I and every believer ever to walk upon this earth is to contend for, to struggle for, to hold fast to, to proclaim was wrought in the Holy Spirit in eternity past, was written down and proclaimed by appointed prophets and apostles and it is to be accepted and obeyed and proclaimed in its entirety by you and me and it is to be done so without distraction. It is to be done earnestly by giving our full attention and effort. These are doctrines such as the doctrine of original sin and total depravity, the doctrine of the virgin birth, the complete deity and humanity of Christ, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and the finished work of Christ alone. This doctrine includes the vicarious substitutionary atonement, the character of God, the work of the Holy Spirit, the lordship of Christ, the saviorhood of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, repentance, regeneration, the second coming of Christ. That core body of truth that has been systematized as as the word has been exegeted and, and that has been taken out and put into this body of doctrine that we hold tightly to. That is what is to be held on to. That is what is to be contended for. That is what has been passed down. We are to immerse ourselves in the scriptures and then stand to defend that objective truth through complete obedience and proclamation. If you are a believer here this evening, then you are being called to contend for this once for all faith by believing it wholeheartedly, obeying it diligently, and proclaiming it faithfully. Believer, you are in a war. And you don't have to walk too far outside the walls of this church to understand that. 
the assaults that are taking place in our world right now, and the assaults that unfortunately have slipped into the walls of our churches that are attacking these precious truths that we hold dear and the Christ that we worship is a massive assault. That is the faithful shepherd's first response. It is his divine appeal to contend earnestly for the faith once for all handed down to the saints. But secondly, I want you to note the faithful shepherd's direct assault. The faithful shepherd's direct assault. Here in verse 4, Jude gives the reason why believers are to contend for the faith. And it's marked by that transition word, for, at the beginning of verse 4. He says, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. False teachers were among them. Spiritual terrorists were mixing in with the true believers in that region. And these men are identified by Jude as certain men. These certain men are identified in direct contrast to the beloved in verse 1 and verse 3. They are the false teachers whose message is in direct contrast to the faith that is mentioned in verse 3. Therefore, there is to be a direct assault on the false teacher's false message. We are to pull no punches when dealing with heresy. These men in our text, they're not identified by name, but their character and their actions clearly indict them. The believers in Jude's day did not know exactly who these men were, but they were beginning to identify their falsehoods. True Christians today are to identify ones who pose as those who teach the truth, but by their wicked lifestyle really oppose the truth. Those who are really frauds, imposters, fakes, and charlatans. Listen, a pastor is not to stand by and allow false teachers to influence his church. His response is to be to cast an all-out assault on them with the truth of the word of God. In fact, one of the main responsibilities of an elder or a pastor is to protect the flock in this manner. And that's what Jude was calling for. These false teachers are further identified as those who have crept into the church unnoticed. You see that there. They have crept into the church unnoticed. Now, the idea is that they slipped into the church in a sneaky, sly way so as not to be noticed. They came in under the radar. They didn't come in flashing signs, hey, I'm a false teacher. And they came in gently and mixed and were very subtle. They give it some time before they begin to contradict the truth that is being taught in small, subtle ways. On the outside, they look like a Christian. They know all of the Christian buzzwords. They are probably very knowledgeable concerning the scriptures. They have convincing arguments. Their differences are subtle at first. However, time and truth go hand in hand. People will always be known by their fruit, even if it takes some length of time to blossom. 
This word has become a popular description of particular people in our society, but these men in our text are the true creepers. So, according to the lingo in our day, false teachers should creep us out just like that weirdo in the park who won't stop staring at you the whole time you're there. You are to identify these men and stay far away from them and their message. Why? Because they will lead you astray. In his further identification of these creepers, Jude issues a dual assault on them. First, he declares their doom. Notice the next phrase in verse 4. These men are those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. The best way to understand the translation marked out long ago is that their condemnation was, was written about long ago, meaning that it was a long ago time-wise speaking, like in the Old Testament. The perfect tense of this word translated marked out or written about, as it could also be translated, indicates that it occurred in the past but has continuing results now. The prophecy concerning the false teacher's doom was written down by Old Testament prophets and the the apostles of the New Testament, and now it's coming to pass. The results of that prophecy about their condemnation is, is then going to work itself out. And the ultimate result will be that those who have their condemnation marked out because they are those false teachers who are influencing the church with their false message is that their souls are going to be condemned to hell because of their apostasy, because of the rejection of the truth. And it is the responsibility of a faithful pastor to call out false teachers who rise up in their churches, to call them to the table and declare to them the end result of rejecting Christ by adhering to the falsehood that they are preaching. You see, Satan will have his men strategically located on this planet until he returns and until Jesus returns and wipes them off this planet, wipes them off the earth with his word. And therefore, as his under-shepherds, pastors must not cower in the face of opposition, but they must rise up for the sake of their flock and declare the destruction awaiting men who pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second assault that Jude issues in his further identification of these men is disclosing their diversion. He's disclosing their diversion. Look at the next phrase in verse 4. He calls them ungodly persons. These are people who are in complete opposition to God, complete opposition to his character, his laws, his his word, and his ways. These are people who are defiant towards God. This is descriptive of their character. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to describe their ungodliness in detail. He says their ungodliness is disclosed by their diversion from the truth concerning God's grace to a perverted understanding and practice of God's grace. You see that where he says, they turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. 
This is the grace that has been lavished upon sinful men by holy God for the purpose of granting them forgiveness from sin and for the purpose of conforming them to the image of his son in holiness. This wonderful, unmeasured, lavishing grace is not to be taken lightly or trampled upon. As we heard this morning in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, we are never to go on sinning that grace may abound. That is never okay for a believer to turn the grace of God into a license to sin. But this is exactly what these people who Jude was writing to were doing. They were claiming that God's grace gives them the freedom to live however they want, to to fulfill every fleshly desire that they have and still get into heaven. They were using this as a license to sin. The question is this, do we ever do this? Do we ever act like these men in this way? Have you ever had the thought, well... I'm already going to heaven and that can't be taken away from me. I might as well indulge the flesh in, you name it, whatever that sin is. We do that sometimes. We do that in our flesh. As we're waiting for Christ to return, for us to be changed into his image when we will see him as he is, we still in our corrupt way of thinking at times, act like these men. Because of our flesh, there are times it can be easy to manipulate grace, to use it as we please. Friends, this must not be. We must treasure grace. And understand that God shed his grace upon us through Christ for the purpose of making us holy just like Christ. Don't pervert it. Don't distort it. Be ever mindful of the precious grace of God that he has lavished upon us. The idea of the word licentiousness here is is unrestrained immorality and vice. It's sensuality. It's driven by by unredeemed passions. This is the indulging of every fleshly desire to the heart's content. And they did these things under the title of God's grace. Men who had come into the church earned somehow the respect of people to influence them. This is is what was at the heart of their teaching. This is what was at the heart of their character. They were in it for this purpose, to indulge their flesh. Their perverted understanding proved them to be unregenerate. One lexicon describes this term as interpreting divine goodness as an opportunity to ignore God and do what they please. Oh, friends, that we would never do that. That we would never do that. God is so good to us. He's so kind to us. And his goodness is is just constant and it is abounding. 
May we never look at that goodness as an opportunity to ignore God and do what we please. Peter employs this term in 2 Peter 2.7 to describe the shameful homosexual conduct of the sodomites. That was this licentiousness that they had, that he was talking about. Certainly this is characteristic of our day. Churches are falling prey to this legislated morality that is infiltrating our country. Jude calls those who succumb to this lifestyle false teachers and he condemns them. Not only do they pervert God's grace in their ungodly diversion, but they also deny Christ as Lord and Master. This phrase there at the end of verse 4, and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ, it places the emphasis on Christ, who is both Master and Lord. Their denial is atrocious because of who they are denying. Christ, the, the sovereign one, the God of the universe. He is the one and only master. He owns everything. And as believers, we are subject to one master. He calls the shots. Our lives are under the lordship of Christ. No other master, including oneself, has any authority above Christ. And we hold to that and we cling to that as believers in the Lord Jesus. But these men, these men divert from the truth by denying him as this. The idea here is that this is a, a continual denial of Christ as Lord. Primarily by lifestyle, but also through speech. The fact is, it goes to what we've been learning in 1 John, that the denial is the pattern of their life seen in their continual disobedience. And how sad it is that this is happening in churches all over our world. However, it is inevitable. And pastors must issue the assault. Well, as we wind down our time together tonight, let me give you some encouragement. First, you are under godly leadership here at Countryside Bible Church. The men who oversee this church love Christ, they adore Christ, they love his people, and they desire to follow the word of God. And so praise God that in this time, in his providence, you are in a place where you have men in leadership who are doing this very thing. They sound the alarm, they issue the assault. There's no putting up with any false teaching of any kind. They're faithfully doing this. We rejoice in that. And second, we win the war. In fact, Christ has already won the war. When he cried out on the cross, it is finished. It was finished. Christ defeated sin. And one day, we will be with him 
in eternity where truth will be uninvaded. There will not be any mixture that these false teachers who creep into churches bring. They will be done away with. They will be trampled underfoot of the Son of God. He will have his prize, his people, his bride. We win the war. Let that encourage you as you go into your week, as you go into your jobs, as you go into all the different activities that you deal with. Yeah, the assault upon the church is real. Yeah, Satan is alive and active. But as we've been learning in Revelation on Sunday nights, Christ, Christ has won. He's defeated the enemy. And so we praise him for that. We rejoice in him for that. And that, and that gives us great motivation then, doesn't it, to contend earnestly for the faith. We strive. We give that valiant day-to-day effort everything we've got to contend for this faith because we hold it dear and we know that our Savior reigns victoriously and we are going to be in his presence for all of eternity. So what do you take with you? Well, on September 11, 2001, after America realized she was under attack, President Bush declared war on the enemy who attacked us. In the same way, we must declare war on all that stands in opposition to the truth of the word of God by earnestly contending for the faith, struggling to believe it wholeheartedly, obeying it diligently, and proclaiming it faithfully. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the call to arms. We're thankful that we fight not in a hopeless way, not in an unknowing way, but we fight knowing that the victory has been won. Help us to contend earnestly with great joy. Lord, as we want to proclaim the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. Lord, help us to, to do that faithfully. We love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it impacts our hearts. And we're thankful for the great privilege we have to worship you. Come together week after week to be reminded of this truth that we are called to contend for. And then to join together as brothers and sisters in arms and to go out and to make war on all that is false, for the glory of Christ and for the extension of his kingdom. In the name of Christ I pray, amen.